as things get more and more advanced, they're getting to where they're starting to infiltrate, you know, carriers and they can find out what policies you have. And then they will go after the companies with cyber policies um, because they know there's an insurance backing that uh, ransom. It's not, I mean, I'll tell you, it's not dumb. No, it's not dumb. It shows a a level of sophistication on there. But it fights against the, you know, notion of having a policy because now you're the ones being attacked. So you got the coverage and now you're the one. I feel like these aren't teenagers in basements. This is probably a little more advanced than that. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Defense Never Rests. Uh, I am Nate Bolander filling in probably incapably for the unparalleled Megan Henry, um, who is off today. People always say that on the news. So she's off today. I'm filling in. Uh, we have two guests today, Matt Margolis, who's the Director of Risk and Legal Management for Lloyd-Jones, and then Corbett Basher, who's the Director of Claims for Marshall McLean Agency Mid-Atlantic. Um, we're going to talk today about um, the plaintiff's bar versus the defense bar uh, with respect to um, kind of changing times and how both of those bars kind of are adapting to things as they change in the legal landscape. Um, we've had Matt on before. He's well known for his TikToks, his legal TikToks on the, on LinkedIn, and he's getting really notoriety for that. And uh, it's well-deserved. He's a really, really funny guy. And really, um, I, I, I've prognosticated before that he's going to be governor one day or something. He's got a, so much personality. And then um, and Corbin is just a fantastic guy. He's uh, with a brokerage. And so he's going to kind of explain what uh, a difference between a brokerage and a claims handler would, would do or, or an insurer would do. Um, and we're going to talk about nuclear verdicts. We're going to talk about social inflation. Corbin handles claims all over the country. So he's going to talk to us about different venues that, that he deals with. Um, so we're in for a real treat. Please uh, subscribe and like this. Leave a comment for us. And uh, without further ado, let's dive right in. And uh, we're happy to welcome in uh, Corbin and Matt to the Defense Never Rests. How are you guys doing? Great. Matt, Matt is a repeat guest, uh, backed by popular demand. So we'll get to him in a second. But Corbin is the new guy. So we'll start with him. Give us your, uh, your position and, and what you do and what that means. Uh, so I am currently the claims director for Marshall McLennan Agency uh, Mid-Atlantic. I have a team of six, soon to be seven. Um, we oversee any and all claims issues for our clients. So any mid-market uh, commercial clients that we have, anything from cyber to uh, general liability, auto, uh, if there's any issues that need advocacy for our clients, we'll use it there to advocate and fight for our clients. And are you in specific silos of claims? Like, you know, you, you well, some people only handle certain types? No, we actually handle everything. Anything okay. and everything you think of um, will funnel to our team. We even have, I have two folks on my team who do specialize in executive lines, which are EPL claims, uh, cyber, um, and then DNO issues. What's the most What's the most exciting cyber would seem to cyber. be like, is it, t- why, cool, right? why is it- it's the hardest <laughs> to hold on to. I can't keep up with all the changes. Every time we turn around, something's new. Is it just and, the technical aspect of it or the, the way at which technology uh, adapts and increases? Which, yeah. And it's the way they're finding new ways to attack uh, through cyber. It's, and we're also facing an internal conflict of now these hackers are attacking insurance folks with insurance policies. So they're going to carriers attacking their networks, pulling all the insurance policy, then making demands for those limits now oh, that they know. Oh, so they're not, yeah, it's, it's becoming a growing issue. Um, and so, so that's why cyber rates are skyrocketing. So you're saying someone will attack a, a company and, and pull, you know, they'll pull XYZ policy for that company. Yep. It's that sophisticated. Yep. They are getting to the point now that, you know, as things get more and more advanced, they're getting to where they're starting to infiltrate, 
you know, carriers and they can find out what policies you have. And then they will go after the companies with cyber policies um, because they know there's an insurance backing that uh, ransom. That is blowing my mind. It's yeah. not, I mean, I'll tell you, it's not dumb. No, it's not dumb. No, I mean, it, shows a lot, it shows a level of sophistication on there. But it yeah. fights against the you know, notion of having a policy because now you're the ones being attacked. So you yeah. got yeah. the coverage yeah. and now you're the one. I feel like these aren't teenagers in basements. This is probably yeah. a little more disadvantaged yeah. than that. Yeah. I was really laughing at emails from like uh, the Nigerian Prince scams yeah. or like the, I have a boat in Holland, help me, <laughs> the lawyer. And there's these guys that are like, all right, I'm just going to steal all these policies from yep. whatever insurance company. <laughs> it's wow. Crazy. It's crazy. It is crazy. Wow. But so how, how, how do those work? I mean, you, it's just you have coverage for this. And so you, it, the policy is triggered and it's paid they, or I mean, I'm sure there's some fighting. There's a lot of fighting. There's a yeah. lot of requirements that would it could probably be a whole separate podcast on. And I am not the one to do it. But <laughs> okay. there are so many intricacies to the cyber policies. I think there's 14 insuring agreements that can be put on a cyber policy, all covering different types of attacks, different types of information. It's it, you have to select kind of what level of coverage you want. Um, so it, it all varies, but cyber, it, it's becoming a huge issue. And there, there is probably some argument to be made or that some people are probably saying that there's a disincentive to have that coverage because you're being targeted, right? Yep. I mean, it's like, right, exactly. It's like, well, we had the foresight to do this, but now we're getting on the back end, we're getting hit more than other folks. And the premiums are going through the roof. Uh, so it's becoming just, it's not advantageous anymore, almost not, you know, to not get the policy because you're paying premiums that are outlandish and at the same time you're the one being targeted is this like the pipeline and matt we'll get i mean matt you are not my jobs are not as exciting i know that oh <laughs> I, I am this is so intriguing to me right yeah now. this is blowing my mind yeah it's, so is this like the pipeline that was just held for ransom is this is that the type of thing that you would deal with on a regular basis yep similar similar we do it just every day but we have you know we at here at marshall clinton agencies we got we have two special folks who handle specifically that realm of coverages because we need someone who specializes in that area, you know, with it changing all the time, with the amounts being demanded or, you know, policy limits. So it depends, you know, millions, you deal with millions of dollars every time. Um, so we have two specialized people for that very reason. Are those people like IT? No, they're, actually, they're claims folks. Um, they, they're specialized in the cyber claims handling, not necessarily mm -hmm. now they're becoming better with technology as they dive into this every day, but they're focused on the claims aspects of you know yeah. anything to cyber wow all right well so that segue matt let's talk about you and i uh not nearly as exciting <laughs> he's, he's got corbin's got the screen behind him it looks like norad yeah. he's probably uh, cyber i have a light switch I you have blurred this. i mean like this i blurred it because there's a bench press behind me <laughs> yeah for those that don't know before we got on matt had all this workout equipment back there and it looked like uh gold gym so we blurred it out but um so it's matt, really what, just it's oh yeah exactly yeah, exactly so what let, let's go with your <laughs> your background so quickly I know you've been a guest before but we like to give a background on on guests yeah, so how sure. did you get where are you and how did you get there so I am the director of legal and risk management at a private equity developer known as Lloyd Jones uh, how I got here is I've been a defense attorney for most of my career and uh, eventually uh, specialized more or less in construction and uh, and risk management inside of construction. I took that and now I'm in-house and living the dream, man. So what is the decision? To, I know the, the jump from firm to in-house is like the dream. It's like jumping out of an airplane into a cloud for, for some, for some people, they say it's amazing. So what, what is, why did you choose to do that? Is that, is that something you sought after for a while? 
So it wasn't originally, right? Because it's such a, um, I don't know, it's such an internal struggle, right? You're like, there are two paths that you always, you were, you were taught in law school. You're either going to be, uh, you're going to be the partner of a law firm, right? You're going to be a big shareholder with either the big book of business, or you were the quintessential trial attorney or the specialist, or you went in-house and you're the general counsel or assistant general counsel, and you're really the corporate side. And man, it was a struggle, right? It's like the angel and the demon. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I guess an angel and the angel. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I, I, I thought about it and I've got, I'm starting a family and I figured, you know, it'd be great to take my, you know, my, uh, my talents in-house, like, like LeBron would say, uh, I'm taking my talents to my family. Yeah. This will be your yeah. announcement. We'll do like yeah, a, I remember it. they were like sitting on benches <laughs> yeah. in that gym when you made that announcement. So you're taking your talents to Lloyd. Can you imagine the, the TikTok and memes uh, I'm oh. planning in my head for LinkedIn right now? Yeah. You got any, oh. yeah. Dust you can throw in the air. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I can't wait for that. Listen, if they were if they were uh, really exciting before, I can only imagine what you come up with next. Some big ones in house. I know about it. About Game changer. Yeah. So what what is the what was the main driving force you doing? One one reason why you made the decision to to make the jump was it the family and more time thing? Yeah, um, that and you know, speaking kind of to you, Corbin, like the inside claims perspective, like managing the claims, I find that so fascinating really managing risk and, and managing an insurance portfolio. Uh, I, I love being an attorney, but I mean, that is, it is cool. It's really it's cool, right? So that was obviously, you know, another portion of the reason why I left or went yeah. in-house. That's, that's exciting. Well, congratulations. That's great. Two big pieces of news. You announced you were having a child and now you're announcing you're going in-house uh-huh. all, all in a month. It's all strategic. I'm trying to keep yeah. building the momentum. Say, yeah. Couldn't let me have this moment. You took it away. <laughs> what, next, what, what are you gonna do in august matt you gotta talk man. I'm running. so i'm running for governor of the state of florida and... <laughs> yeah well your governor down there is under some fire so maybe you could just slide right in there and start your yeah your man training. i don't i don't i don't know if i'm i'm destined for politics i've said it before my parents always wanted me to be a weatherman yeah so maybe that'll be the announcement in august i'll be that dual jd meteorologist <laughs> I've never seen one. I've never seen one. That's yes. great. It's new. It's new. Yeah. It's hot. It's hot right now. Yep. And in both professions, you could argue you're always wrong no matter what you do. That's so true. That's, that's it's always great. great. Yeah, always. Yeah, really it always bad. depends. That's right. That's um, so funny. Well, I, well, so Corbin, for folks that are watching, you know, I, I think folks who are watching no claims and they know what attorneys do and everything. But what does a broker do? You said you were the brokerage. So what does that do? Is that how is that different from those? So we take, you know, if, if a company comes to us, they say essentially this is what we do as a company. These are all the facets of our company. These are all the inner workings and in what we do. So then what we do, or our producers do, the salesmen, is they actually meet with them. They go through what they do, and then they try to match the insurance coverage for what they need to protect them. So uh, that, you know, up to the limits, any self-retentions, if they want to join any captives. Um, and then from there, once they bond the book of business, uh, and then, you know, they shop that out with a bunch of carriers once they get the best rates with the best coverages, which we also do focus on customer service that they're going to get in the long run. It's not just the numbers because we want to make sure that when we put them with a carrier that they're going to get um, the product that they're owed. Um, so once it is booked, then we come in on the claim side for all the moments that matter. Any, when stuff goes wrong and you need somebody to advocate for you, that's where we jump in. If you think you've got a coverage denial that's not accurate or you're not getting responses from your carriers, 
that's where we jump in and we start pushing the envelope the best we can. And so would you, would you ha- so you deal with kind of the communication between the insured and the insurer, but what about just handling of a claim day to day? So let's say there's a claim, let's say the insurer picks it up and you're going forward with litigation on that claim. Are you day to day being reported to and everything? Are you kind of in the background monitoring? We can be depending on what the client wants. If the, okay. you know, if the client's happy and content with what's going on, they don't need us to oversee the day to day, then mm-hmm. we won't. But if things get a little fuzzy and we need to start monitoring it more, then we'll start picking it up and just keeping tabs on what's going on. We don't directly handle claims. You know, we're not adjusters. We just advocate. So we push the ball where we think think things need to get pushed by the right. carriers. And, and do you get asked all the time or do you ever affirmatively watch a claim and say, we, we're we going to make the decision? If so, how do you make that? Who makes the decision? How do you determine that? So I won't track it unless... It's either like if it's a large claim that comes in, I'll keep an eye on it just mm-hmm. because I want to make sure that things are going smoothly, at least until I know that it's with an adjuster, they're handling it appropriately. And then maybe I'll peel back a little bit. Um, but if a client comes to us and says, hey, I'm not getting what you know I think I need or I'm not getting responses or this coverage issue, then we'll jump in right away. Um, but a lot of it is alerting from the client. Um, they do do a lot of self-reporting. So but, you know, we'll obviously help with that as well if they need to. And Matt, I'm sure when you were doing uh, your defense work, you would re- re- uh, re- report to uh, brokerage folks as well as all, claims handlers. Yeah, all, yeah, all the time. First, like I say, Corbin, that is the coolest thing. It's such a value-added service you provide. Thanks. I mean, I'm, listen, I, I, do, I did this last one. Shout out to MMA. Yeah. Um, great brokerage. So, yeah, man. So, listen, there was plenty of times where as defense counsel, on any sort of big, especially like you described, Carbon, like really big claims you're monitoring. It'll be defense counsel, it'll be a broker, and it'll also be the uh, claims person. And listen, they they were out, out to bat for their insured or their client, you know, all the time. So I I always respected seeing the broker on there that honestly took a you know a real uh, I guess advocacy yeah. I can't even speak like position. Well, I couldn't say report, uh, so I think you win because you're. A couple more syllables, so you're fine. <laughs> what day is today, man? It's yeah. Did you do well? I'll ask Corbin this in a second, but Matt, did you ever see a, a disconnect between the broker and the claims folks? Like, I'm sure they probably talked separately, but I've never seen in my life, in front of me, even on a call, that they disagreed. Um, I've I've seen some brokers uh, disagree on certain positions. Okay. Um, in a positive direction, right? Like, because right. it's always an I'm always my client, you know, I'm, I'm working for my client. I have seen it every so often and listen, I'm, I'm for it. I'm, I, I'm, I'm liability counsel, right. I'm not coverage counsel. So I just like, I like hide. Um, right. But I I have seen it before and it's been, listen, it's, it, it happens. It happens. And Corbin, is that pretty common? I mean, do you guys have behind the scenes, like if you have a round, I imagine a round table (laughs) before mediation or trial, and then you guys go in your room and you're like, wow, we don't agree on this and we better hash it out. We, well, it happens all the time. We disagree with not all the time. I won't say all the time. It happens periodically um, where we disagree. But a lot of times we'll have those conversations direct with the carrier too. You know, we'll pick mm-hmm. up the phone and call the carrier and just try to walk through why they are where they are and then explain why we disagree. But we also will explain to our clients if coverage is denied and it's the accurate and it's the right decision by the carrier. Part of our job is also explaining that to the clients right. that, you know, this is not covered. Uh, and that's probably the most difficult conversation to have. In all these, in, in all these conversations, that's the toughest yeah. one. You probably had some contentious back and forths that oh, way because yeah. it could mean a lot of money. Yeah, it's most of the time it's folks who have paid a lot of money for premium, 
and it's a, they're facing an uphill battle, you know, with a lot at risk. So right. it's it's tough. It's a tough scenario. Yeah, I have a case right now with uh, with I represent one defendant. There's another defendant, and uh, coverage was disclaimed for both of us, and we're facing you know a significant award, and yep. um, it really changes the equation with how you go about things. Changes <laughs> you know? landscape. And uh, yeah, and, and that yeah. but that that disclaimer letter um, is that what you call? I mean, we call them yep. disclaimer letters. It's it's that's that's the death knell a lot of times, and, and you just hate getting those. Yeah, we see a lot of disclaimers. A lot of I've been seeing a lot more general RORs being sent lately. Mm-hmm. Just as soon as there's any issues, they just will, you know, send a blank ROR, essentially just saying we reserve our rights on everything until we figure out what's going on. Right. And how are those received? Um, they're filed and then we wait for an official position or if we don't get one soon, we'll push. Yeah. Yeah. It Um, it just, you copy and paste the number of exclusions. So if he put this piece of paper, what does this mean? (laughs) A lot of it is just, oh yeah, we, we're not sure what's happening here, but we're going to reserve our rights until we figure it out. Right. Right. Uh, Um, Corbin, so we were talking beforehand, you're an attorney. So give me kind of the, give us kind of the background of how you became where you're at. I know you had a bunch of different uh, career moves to get. Yeah. Um, So I started off actually when I I graduated law school in 2015 and I started off on the plaintiff side. Uh, Did that for a little less than a year, realized it was not for me. Um, Just didn't, wasn't great for my conscience. So I transitioned over to James River um, and I was on the Uber account as an adjuster for litigation and coverage issues. And then ended up as an assistant director there um, when we actually dropped the Uber account. And then migrated over to Selective where I did general liability for a year and then uh, was recruited here. Nice. Now, did you ever think when you're the plaintiff's attorney, I don't like this, it's not fitting with my ideology, so let me go to the defense side and be an attorney? Or did you, why did you go from that to claims? Well, so before I went to law school, I actually worked at GEICO. Oh, okay. personal auto claims. And that was kind of the driver to get me. I was like, man, I see what these attorneys are doing on the plane. So I could do this all day. This is easy. And I'm making way less. Um, <laughs> but then when you get on there, it's just not it, for me personally, it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be for me. Right. And I, we were talking beforehand that usually it's the opposite. Usually a defense attorney will yep. go play upside for money. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then, it, but ideologically they might not be there because they are so used to the defense side and it's tough to switch over, but the money's too good or yep. they're, you know, they're starting a family and they want to have some more means. And they, a lot of times they make the best plan floors. They know what the defense does. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I know a claims, a really good plaintiff attorney in Philadelphia who was a claims guy for, I think, two decades. And one of his taglines, I'll never forget on his website, is like, I know the opposite side in and out. So I know. Yep. So he, he told me, we had lunch one time and he said, listen, I know as soon as I pick up the phone, I said, what are your limits? What are you, what's your umbrella policy? What's this policy? Have you tendered? Who, who do you tender to? And I think plaintiff attorneys don't often ask those they questions don't. up front, but this yep. guy knew exactly who had the coverage why, when he dismissed these players, he kept these players in because he yeah. knew where the pot was at the end. And that's, I think that's how Morgan Morgan was started. They yeah. started with a bunch of defense lawyers and now yep. they're uh, huge, especially well, down your way, Matt. Yeah, yeah that's the, yeah. where's the headquarters well, Orlando, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, there, listen, there, I've had plenty of claims with some really good Morgan and Morgan attorneys. Yep. And a lot of them, listen, they're a blast to work with, work against, I guess, you know, right. We're all, we may be on different sides of the V, but we're all working together, yep. right? I mean, it's, it's how it yep. works. I want to I want to go back for a second, Corbin, because you made a pun. I don't think you realized it. It's a driving factor right after you were referencing Geico. I caught that. Oh, oh wow. yeah. See? Was that on purpose? I that unknowingly slipped it in. I was going to say, was that on purpose? <laughs> Not intentional, was, but I'll take it. Okay. Good. As a as a future father, respect. That was a yeah. great dad joke. Appreciate that. Yeah. That your <laughs> your dad jokes increase tenfold. Yeah. Is that how it works? It just like. Oh, yeah. The day on. they come out, dad jokes flow. Yeah. 
Well, when I was in law school, I turned 30 and my, or I'm 28 or 29. And my, my friend said, I lived with, he said, um, Hey, can you help me move this desk? And I moved it without his help or something. I was much fitter back then. He said, wow, I get, it was right after my birthday. He said, well, I guess you have grown man strength. And I said, what do you mean? He's like, you know, how old grown men can just lift, just like lift things. <laughs> you know, like you get to be a certain age, you just can like, you can lift anything you want until you get to be like 60 and then you can't lift anything. But I, if I, I it's the same way. Like when you become a dad, you probably have those puns and you, oh, yeah. when you get to be 30, you just all of a sudden can like lift everything. So I'm going to start picking up heavier stuff. There you go. Well, yeah, right. well, yeah, exactly right. Um, Matt, so I've got the bench press behind me. Is yeah. that why? But Save see, that's, that, that's not like real str- I've always been told that if you lift like weights, you're getting, what's it, what's it called? You just look big, but oh, you're not show, too strong. Yeah. Show, show not. Yeah. Yeah, show yeah. yeah. So I was told like, you know, flip, flip tires around. Um, I remember when I was in high school, I did the, remember Mike Allstott, the fullback for the Buccaneers? Yep. Oh, I yeah. did the Mike Allstott workout one day threw up all over uh, my high school. <laughs> my friends are pushing cars and flipping tires. And I was like 135 pounds. And I was like, no, I just threw up. And we all, we all were just sick, sick as dogs. But that lasted one day. I, I'm as big as a tire. So I, I don't know if it'll ever work out. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're not at the beginning of COVID. You said you were all, uh, yeah. you were all cut up. So yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Maybe the little talk, maybe it's not. Who knows? Listen, I'm an attorney. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Matt, at least for me, I love. I mean, I love working with claims folks that are attorneys too. I mean, I think that they. I've never really been like challenged um, in a in a non cordial way. I mean, they're like, "Did you consider this? Did you consider that?" It's almost like having another colleague that you can bounce ideas off of. And um, and I, I, I love it. I mean, I think some people say, well, I don't want to be questioned and I'm doing, I know this is, I'm handling the, the legal side, but I, I don't agree with that at all. I think yep. collaboration is far better. And I don't know if you had ever dealt with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're right. It is like a colleague, especially, I mean, I, especially a, a lawyer claims person who also was working on the defense side. There's plenty of that I've seen where it's like, well, working at a very large defense shop and, you know, go in-house with the client. You're right. It's always, it is always very cordial and collegiate and it's like, Hey, you want to shoot for an early mediation? And I look at the other side, I'm like, yeah, let's shoot for an early mediation. It is like a, a collaborative effort. It is a right. blast. Right, right. And I think those folks just know more about what you're yep. going through because they've been through it. And so I think that's that's great, Corbin, that you have that you have the that training in the back of your pocket too. Gotta help it's out day to day. Yeah, it's helpful. I know kind of at least a little bit of what drives, you know, the plaintiff side, right. which I think we all do. Yeah. And speaking of which, that's a yeah. perfect segue into our, our topic. We we, we want to really talk about was. The, the state of the plaintiff's bar and the state of the defense bar. And we talked beforehand, Corbin, about um, the plaintiff's bar kind of being more um, advanced or having some more strategies that they employ than the defense bar. And I, I think, I guess I'll just start, do you think that's a true statement? Do you think that the defense bar is advancing more, or sorry, the plaintiff's bar is advancing more than the defense bar, um, uh, you know, over year after year? I, I think so. I mean, they work together, you know, for the plaintiff's bar, they have all essentially unlimited clients. Um, every person out there who's been injured by anything is a potential client. Um, so they work together very well. They develop strategies together. They have summits where they'll meet together and kind of round table ideas. And they have the listservs that we talked mm-hmm. about. We don't, the defense side doesn't necessarily have that because there's a limited client base. Um, and it's that collaboration, I think gives them a huge advantage, um, along with other things that, you know, we'll get to down the road, but um, I do think they continue to advance because they continue to work together and collaborate. Right. And Matt, would you agree with that? I mean, do you see that in Florida that uh, over, you know, your years practicing the, the plaintiff's bar has always come up with new things that can bring up and the defense bar kind of doesn't meet that the same way. Couldn't agree more. I think yeah. you see 
you'll see uh, complaints drafted and look very similar to other complaints. Yeah. You'll see certain arguments presented that are very similar to other arguments. And it's, and it's, it's almost like, uh, it, it, it's like evolution, right? Like certain arguments will evolve and the best arguments arrives and everyone will pass it around. Yep. But you're right on the defense side, you're right. You may work with four or five carriers and you work for four or five carriers. And I don't want to cross pollinate any ideas or any, any, I really don't want to talk strategy or talk shop because of fear of someone poaching a client or whatever. You're right. So all these defense shops are more or less siloed from each other and they right. can't grow like that. Right. We, we internally all, all the time in our firm send we just got one this morning from our insurance coverage person. Have you ever seen this? And we had a big discussion on email amongst all the attorneys about that email. And we have a bi-weekly meeting where we bring this stuff up. But in terms of, you know, and, I, and we obviously have contacts in the defense world that, that specialize in things. So, you know, if I have an sure. aviation case in Buffalo, then and I had co-counsel, we got along really well, or, or another defense counsel got along really well, I'll call them for an issue, but there's no kind of, it's all just, it's all one-offs, right? It's all, I know that person, this person's, I feel like plaintiff's the plaintiff's bar has this listserv and I know, I know about yeah. it because at least in Philly, I've not seen it live, but I mean, everyone talks about it. And every time you have a win, a good argument, you win a hearing, an information about it just gets uploaded to this. Yeah. And it's just this huge collaboration. I was talking to Corbin before the, before the podcast started. Every, every plaintiff's attorney in Philly, at least, loves each other. Yep. I, I tell a, a plaintiff's attorney friend, I have a case with Jim and Tom and Joe, and I love all those guys. I'm like, well, didn't they, they just took your clients on this one case, didn't they? Or you guys disagreed on, yeah, but we're all, I mean, I think that's the baselines, you're all making tons of money yep. and life is good. I mean, they're on their boats and life yeah. is good. And I don't, I mean, Corbin, you were, you and I were chatting about that before at WKNC as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it almost seems it's less stressful. I mean, they make obviously lots of money with their uh, clients and they just seem to have a lot less pressure on the day-to-day -day from my perspective. Um, I feel like the defense side faces a lot more restrictions and regulations and fear of a nuclear verdict or a, you know, cases going awry um, than the plaintiff's bar. I mean, what real downside do they have by taking a case of trial and losing? I mean, it, it's not humanizing the person anymore. Now it's more of just a collective, oh, we lose this one case, doesn't matter. But I don't think the plaintiff's bar is really looking at the person anymore necessarily you know, that right. individual and their injury and what they need. Um, so on our side, we face more pressures day to day. Uh -huh. um, and I, we talked about bad faith. And I yeah. think that also goes to it too, where bad faith is now being used as a weapon or a tool against carriers, as opposed to its original design to punish carriers when they act egregious. Right. Now we have to go to seminars on how to avoid traps. This is not the intention of bad faith, is to trap right. carriers. Right. There's certain so, things out there that, that I think are so they're supposed to be used so sparingly. Mm -hmm. I bring up punitive damages all the time. I had I've had several complaints lately where punitives are thrown in and it's thrown in not with a separate count, but with the word recklessly or the word intentionally or the, maliciously or something wanton behavior. And if you don't notice that and I've seen you know, I'll, I'll PO it, I'll do preliminary objections and a co another defense counsel will answer. And I'm like, well, I, I guess you, because there's no punitive count, you're just you got too many cases. You're just answering so quickly. Yeah. But it's just, but so. Corbin, what is, what is a bad faith claim and what, what does that mean when you say that's triggered? So all states have unfair claim practices acts that, you know, each state has their own set of rules that carriers must follow. Uh, essentially just saying that they are going to adjust your claim in good faith. We are, you know, despite what the plaintiffs advertise that all carriers are evil and out to get, you know, every consumer and they're always going to offer you lower, essentially saying that by de facto that every carrier handles every claim unrepresented in bad faith. Um, 
which is it's a standard that we have to be reasonable. Um, you can't you know, fail to settle claims that you should. You have to look out for your insured's best interest. Um, but it is supposed to be a way to essentially keep carriers from doing um, acts that are against their insured. Um, so like I said, it, it's supposed to punish, but it's no longer seems like that's the, uh, what it's being used for. Right. I always think of the, the ads that there's some, some person laid up in the hospital with a full body uh, bandage or whatever. And the, the insurance person's, yeah, yep. the person, the insurance yeah. person said, sign this for 50 bucks yep. and you'll never sue us. You know, they, they, I think people think that happens in every case and there's someone just stationed at the hospital, <laughs> you know, like trying to do away with claims. Before Ready to catch claims. Yeah. I saw a commercial just like that. What was it called? It was like sw swoop and settle. That's what they call it. Swoop and settle. Swoop and settle. That's what it was. Literally what you're describing. It was a, I think it was a commercial and then maybe a billboard. And what, what it showed was, a, you know, uh, that an insurance person would, would come in in the cloak of night, you know, probably, I, I don't think they were wearing it, but I think assuming like a trench coat and a hat coming in with a, a check for 50 bucks for a claim worth millions of dollars. And don't allow the insurance company to swoop in and settle the claim. Swoop and settle. Yeah. So <laughs> I've seen exactly what you're describing. And it's, it's this sounds so Florida. Was this Florida? Yeah. Was this a regional it? thing? <laughs> yeah. It sounds very Florida. Yeah. My wife's well, family's from there. And I, and I was amazed by the billboards and the, you know, the advertisements and stuff. It truly is a magical place. Yes. Oh yeah. I, that's the best way to describe it. I'll leave it in magical. Yeah. Yeah. So Matt, you, you, you were talking about, you've seen some pleadings look the same as other pleadings. If you, I mean, give us a, give an example of like, you saw something like, man, I know they got this from another firm or I know that they, someone just, uh, this, this just won at a hearing. So they're going to put this down everywhere. I remember the COVID complaints all looked very similar. Okay. Um, at least when I first saw them getting filed. Mm -hmm. So when they first when they first started to pop up, and now granted in Florida, you really, I mean, you could file a COVID claim, but where is it going to go? Right. Uh, we have the small immunity. Uh, but I remember seeing plenty of complaints start to look very similar. And then there was one complaint out of Miami against uh, a supermarket chain that beat a motion to dismiss. And I, I didn't follow much after, but I would have to assume that that complaint especially made its way across the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, like, I, Corbin, I think you nailed it tremendously like it it truly is this collaborative effort um that we just well i can't say we anymore but at least defense counsel generally just don't don't adhere to they have to they have to collaborate in order to combat the fear of bad faith or an adverse judgment that's just way out of left field Come right. with it man that's stuff's part gotta find I, a way to collaborate yeah and and after it's funny after there's a heat after there's a big pennsylvania supreme court decision or superior court decision you'll see the plaintiff's bars. One thing that comes to mind is, is uh, discovery requests. The plaintiff's mm -hmm. bar will automatically start asking for things that have been deemed constitutional and relevant and discoverable in every discovery request across the board, unless it's a really podunky, <laughs> excuse me, but small plaintiff's firm, whatever. Mm -hmm. But the big players will all just start adding, adding that the next week. And on yep. the defense side, and I can think about like insurance coverage, you know, a, a Philadelphia court said you can, you can, see beyond the declaration pages in certain in certain instances. And so everyone asked for the full policies and exclusions and everything. On the, and on the defense side, one of the things that we're incorporating in our discovery request more and more is, do you have a third-party funding source? So, so, I mean, I don't know if you have them. And so Pennsylvania just said, you can ask for that. You get that. Well, it's been months and months, and we've incorporated them as in most of our discovery requests, but I've never seen one from it. I mean, there's no... There's no big meeting we're having. Yeah, <laughs> we're just doing this all when, when everyone individually recognizes it. You know what I mean? And that's not the I've way to do seen, it. 
I don't think I've ever seen a litigation funding style discovery request, at least in a state court. I'm sure it exists. I don't, and I'll admit it candidly on this podcast, I don't know if that's authorized under Florida law, if I can discover a litigation funding agreement. Right. Well, then there's some implications if you, I mean, you can make some arguments that if there is, you can, you know, there's certain things that are implicated there, but, you know, we just want to know. Yeah. And they, of course, yeah. object to it and we can fight it or not, depends on the, depends on the circumstances. But I'm just, you know, it's funny that a, a, a ruling comes down and the plaintiff's bar assimilates it. They're on yeah. it. They have a listserv. They have, I'm sure they have like meetings in basements. <laughs> plaintiff's attorney or defense attorneys are all kind of like on their own island. They're within their own firm, but I don't, there's no like, even like big conferences like BRI and stuff. I don't, I don't see people getting into breakout rooms and really getting in the nitty gritty of stuff. Maybe there's just too many of us or too many different types of claims. Oh. Or what? So yeah. firms are, won't even speak internally. Um, you'll have a lot of big insurance defense related firms that are siloed within silos. So you'll mm -hmm. have like, this is my practice group yeah. that's based out of X that only does X type of claims. They won't speak to, you know, office B who's still in the state, but maybe in a different office or even, listen, I've seen it as well. I have friends who have told me that they're in big offices in, a, in one locality and practice groups won't speak to each other at all. So I yeah. you're not even getting collaboration within yeah. a firm itself. Right. It's like a mindset you have to get through. I feel like the mindset of defense is just, this is my case, you know, this is our case. This is what we do. We've got to get through that. We've got to break that threshold. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise we're just not going to advance. We're going to get left behind. Right. Um, and then continue to pay nuclear verdicts. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what are some other tactics you're seeing Corbett in, in cases that you might not have seen when you were at your previous employers that, I mean, what, are, what how's the, the plaintiff's bar adapting over time and what new strategies are they using that you're seeing? I mean, I almost feel like they're using a more, at least for what I've seen. So most of mine is going to be based on my, uh, when I was with James River, when we saw a lot of litigation. Um, it's seeming more and more to me, like plaintiff's counsels just don't care, as in they don't have this fear or pressure, like we were talking about the pressure. And so they're just not negotiating as much as I used to see. I used to see more movement, whereas now, especially in Florida, I would see a lot of, uh, we'd pay a lot more than case values were actually worth just for the fear of a verdict in Florida. Um, so it's more to me of a, you know, obviously they're starting that reptile theory, mm -hmm. um, which is becoming more prevalent. And it's, it's just, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. It's an almost an, I don't care attitude where I know I'm going to get something because I filed litigation. So I know there's money there. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of how much am I going to get from you? Right. And it's a tough mentality. That is the toughest wall to break through um, with the plaintiff's counsel. I think another thing that occurs is that I just saw one of my friend's firms posted this morning that they reached, they, they got a $12.7 million settlement in a case in Pennsylvania. And it's this wow. attorney that is good friends with my friend at this firm. And I think part of it is, at least in, in our firm and our, with our insureds and our clients, we oftentimes have confidentiality agreements in our settlements. Yep. So a plaintiff's attorneys can't, you know, well, some, some of them really push and sometimes we relent and we say, okay, we agree on, it takes weeks to agree on the language that one sentence, you know, secured a verdict in, in this many figures for a woman who had this going on or man that had this going on. Mm -hmm. But if you want to really get business, what's the best way to do that? The best way to do that is to pump up these huge verdicts you've won. And then people get stars in their eyes when they look online, they look at a billboard or whatever. And you don't get that if you settle, right? Yep. You only get that if you have the big trial and you bury the person 
and you can you can walk out of the courtroom with all the I mean that that's really happens but all the microphones in your face and you can announce that your person was vindicated and so I think that Corbin if you're looking at building a practice as a plaintiff's attorney who's going to come to you if you're like hey I sell some cases they're all confidential but just believe me yeah yeah. versus versus millions and millions and millions recovered from my client, which you can only pump up if you go to trial. Yep. But I think that maybe that's part of it. And, and you, but the thing is, you have to convince your client to, to do that. If, if, if someone puts up a million bucks, you have to say, don't, you know, don't take it, go for five. And that's tough for some people. I mean, it's like deal they, or no deal. Well, I feel like what the plaintiff's bar should be required to do is if they, when these offers are made or they're in negotiations, they should... I think, be forced to you know at least give an idea of this is what you would take home today compared to if you went to trial and we did get this verdict. And there's no way of really knowing, so it's kind of tough. But this is what the client would actually take home if you did go to trial. Because once you file suit, you know, the plaintiff's counsel's fee goes up, the percentage they take goes up, the expenses to litigate goes up. So that's just more money that's being taken. So while you may get a higher verdict two or three years down the road, you're also, your expenses are going to be a lot more. Your fee cut's going to be a lot more. The time that you didn't have that money that you could have put into a, you know, any kind of investment vehicle to grow, you've lost that time too. So it, to me, it's almost unethical. You, know, right. you feel like you have to have these conversations with your client to, so they right. can make the best decision, but that's not what's happening. Right. When I was a younger, brasher attorney, I used to always ask plaintiffs during their deposition, uh, it's my understanding that the demand is X. Why is that? Yeah. And, and uh, I had objections out the wazoo, but one time, it's amazing that the, the plaintiff turned the, the attorney goes, it's what? I don't want that. And I was like, wow, that's wonderful. And they moved to strike that comment. And everything. Yeah. I, I, you know, because the, especially in New York, I do a lot of work in New York. It's like, a, you know, some of these cases are slip and falls, soft tissue injuries, 2.5 million. And when they say that, they're like, they know at that moment, when you ask the question deposition, you're not really trying to yeah. get, put money in my pocket. You're, you're trying to put money in your pocket. You know? And um, yeah. so anyway, but well, well, I'll say to that, I, at least a differing opinion on it. I have seen, I would say probably the cost of, of healthcare probably plays a part in it as well, right? Like if, if you have somebody without health insurance treating on an LLP, you know, or a letter of protection, for example, in Florida, I mean, their expenses could be truly like, you know, they have a knee surgery, a hip replacement, what have you. It could be, you know, I don't know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars in medicals that they have to pay. And, and the plaintiff's attorney is also stuck in the scenario. We're like, well, I got to try the case. I know the right. case maybe really isn't worth $450,000, but you're, you're left with no choice, right? Because if you settle for 200, you've got a client who's, who's got, right. I mean, it, it goes to your point card where it's, it's, you have a client you're not maybe looking out for because you've created a scenario where they've got so such high medicals and you can't settle the case yep. for them. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's all or nothing. So I think yeah. that maybe plays a part in it as well. It's, at least I've seen it on my side. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. So what, what, let me, I want to ask you both about nuclear verdicts because Corbin, you mentioned nuclear verdicts. So I'll start with you. What is a nuclear verdict and um, <laughs> how do you deal with them and how are they reported to you? How do you talk about them? So um, nuclear verdicts are just enormously high verdicts. So verdicts that necessarily wouldn't have are not reasonable, but they're just astronomically high. Um, but they're becoming more reasonable, if that makes sense. Because, you know, I'm, does that make sense? It's the norm. Yeah, yeah. At one point, they used to be nuclear verdicts, but now are we just going to call them verdicts because they're just becoming every day? Um, really and how do you fight that? How do you, and I think 
there's a couple ways we can fight it. And one is we should start working together as a defense bar. So we can try to catch up to plaintiff's bar. Um, I think we need to educate the public on, um, like I was talking about how the plaintiff's counsel or the plaintiff's bar, they advertise all the time about the negative insurance companies. I think we need some kind of public outreach for the insurance carriers to get out there and show that we are actually helping or trying to help the public. Um, and I think we need to put our foot down on some cases um, mm -hmm. more often because we get so lost in one claim that, oh, I'll settle this one for a couple thousand bucks, no big deal, but then add that up over time. And then slowly you start developing where I am getting that mindset, where as a plaintiff counsel, I'm going to get money. It's just a matter of how much. So they just keep pressing the envelope. Um, and with corporate clients, I'm sure you see it all the time. It's not hard for a jury to convince themselves that I'll just give a pile of money from this big corporation to this little person who's so hurt. And I just can't imagine that they'll survive. And I think we need to find a way. We just we got to find a way to humanize the corporate client. Instead of using the corporate name, we need to find a way to use the person's name that may be representing the corporation. Just take away that corporate entity's, you know, overarching. And we used to have to do this with Uber all the time. With Uber cases, you don't want Uber in front of the you know jury. It's just that, that write a blank check at that point. Right, right. And and part of that, and, and Matt, we were talking about Sherry Bell. It's another shout out to her. She runs this course on uh, all these issues, social inflation, and it's really wonderful. And we had her on the podcast recently. But um, when you humanize the corporate defendant, there's a couple ways to do that. But one major thing is choosing the corporate designee. I mean, that's a huge decision. And, um, you know, I've left that up to clients on occasion, especially when I first started. Hey, who knows the most about this? They'd say, Tom. Okay, Tom. And Tom would be the corporate designee. And now I bet them not only for their knowledge and whether they meet the notice of deposition criteria, but do they present well? Are they sympathetic? Could I talk to them about, listen, are, I... They do care about the hurt plaintiff. They do, but they feel like they need to not. They need to be so objective and so robotic and answer the question. And it's okay to say, "I'm sorry this happened to you," but it doesn't mean it's our fault. I mean, you don't need. To, it, those are mutually exclusive, right? Yep. And so I think that that's really important is to choose the corporate designee and really put a concerted effort into doing that versus just whoever seems to know the most about that topic. Um, we would, Matt, Matt, what, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'd say we would do that from the carrier perspective too on who we would send to trials. Right. Is depending on the plaintiff and the fact cases, we would send certain folks that would give, you know, would present better for that jury pool. Right. Um, so it right. would be the carriers as well as the corporate designee. Right. Matt, Matt, what ways do you, back in your previous life, what ways did you employ uh, kind of humanizing the corporate? All, all those years years ago. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, a week, a week at least. But. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you would. When people see this, it, yeah, fair point. Yeah. Um, all the years back when I when I when I was investigating, how yeah. I would combat the nuclear verdict and social inflation and all the all the things that go along with that. I tend to agree with what you're saying in terms of the corporate designee. I mean, having somebody who presents like a human is just I I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's nearly impossible. It used to be. You're right one or two corporate designees, depending on obviously the topics being presented or, or what, what they know. And it just, it, you could prep anyone effectively to be a corporate representative. Right. You could effect, you could, you're right. It's, it's having someone who truly represents the face of the company that really will change someone's mind. I, I, I stand by that firmly and I, I couldn't agree with you more. Right. The problem is if you pick someone who's the nicest, 
but doesn't know about the topics and notice the depth. That might be a problem. Then you're being yeah. reposed. <laughs> then, you got, then you got someone else. You, you need know, a different designee. Exactly. Well, something we've done yeah. in the past, we've produced multiple if there's no one person that can talk. I mean, it's pretty common in Pennsylvania. I don't yeah, know it's I, common in Florida. But they'll yeah. say we want we you want someone. Yeah, usually if in a products case, it's the books and then the product. Mm-hmm. So they'll yeah. say like there's an asset purchase agreement. So who did the books and who, you know, the, someone that's, a, you know, a bookkeeper or did accounting. And then there's someone that's like, okay, I designed the product. I'm an engineer, et cetera. And so, you know, that's a little, people try to pigeonhole someone into that. And they'll say, well, you're an engineer. Let me teach you accounting in an afternoon <laughs> or vice yeah. versa. I think it's easier just to spread that. I mean, I know it's a pain, but it's easier just to have people in their own lanes, you know? Yeah. It could, when we would do construction, it'd be the same deal. It'd be like, this is the, if there's delay damages, this is the delay guy. And this is the defect guy or whatever. We would slice and dice depending on those issues, but right. even still like, God, have somebody that's 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 personable that could speak. Yeah. That's not you're right. That robotic, yeah. Uh, we did nothing wrong. I mean, it's not gonna. I again, shout out to Sherry on this one because I feel yeah. like I'm mirroring. <laughs> well, that's good. That means their training is working, right? Yeah. Well, again, shout out to Sherry, guys. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Corbin, you see, if you do claims in different regions, are you seeing regions that are? I mean, we see it in Philly versus surrounding counties. Obviously, urban and more liberal areas are higher verdicts, et cetera. But yeah. do you. When you get a claim in a in a certain venue or jurisdiction, does your light bulb go off and be like, "Oh no, this is we don't want a jury here for these there's, facts"? There's a few. I mean, Louisiana sticks out. Mm-hmm. It's tricky down there. I mean, they have uh, the one year prescription, or I think they call it prescription down there, where it's you have one year to file suit in Louisiana, mm-hmm. so you get a lot of litigation. But at the same time, they have um, the McDill tender. I don't know if you guys are familiar with McDill tenders. No. No. You have to in Louisiana affirmatively tender a reasonable number within 30 days of receiving information. Um, so if you make an offer in Louisiana, you might as well just send the check for that number. Now this is strictly for first party. So I should preface sure. with that UMUIM right. first party. Sure. Um, but yeah, so the McDill tenders, if it's reasonable, you know, so if I offer 10,000 to settle a claim, I have to either specify that 8,000 of this is for you know, your injuries and then 2,000 we don't necessarily agree with, but we're going to offer just to kind of settle the case to kind of cap that you only have to send an $8,000 check. But if you offer it and it's not broken down in that way, you should go ahead and tender that money um, with no release. It's just sending it wow. to the plaintiff's counsel. So wow. tricky. And that, so are you in every, are you in every state? Do so you have to know this in every state? When, when I was with James river, I handled all 50 States, including Puerto Rico. Um, so it was, I learned a lot about a lot of venues. Wow. And what, what, what is the most, uh, what's, what venue do you want to, do you love being in the most and what venue do you hate being in the most? And, and let me just preface yeah. this by saying uh, Philadelphia has been, it was just named this year again, we have the great distinction of being the number one judicial hellhole in America. There's a publication called the Judicial Hellholes. And if for plaintiff's attorneys, it's the best. For defense, it's the worst. For plaintiff's, it's the best in all of America. How about that? So oh, I'm Googling that. <laughs> no, I, I'm, seriously. Ju- Where are we on this? Judicial Hellholes. Yeah, it's Philadelphia's oh, yeah, number one. I'm going to have to write that down. Yeah. So, <laughs> so where, where is your, from practice, Corbin, where do you say you have a claim and you're like, oh, you know what? Good, good law for us. I'm really excited to do this versus, oh my God, this is the worst venue. So I would say, and this is going to be contradict intuition, but I loved Florida mainly because we had such good firms down there. Oh, cool. All right. So we back. had, yeah, we had really good <laughs> firms and not saying we'd win all the time, obviously, because we didn't, but we had really good firms to help facilitate those cases so that made it a lot easier for us um and you need good firms down there uh, in florida to, to navigate that 
Right. Um, yeah. The worst, man, probably New York. Pennsylvania. Okay. All right. I can handle that. Yeah. I'm, I'm in New York a lot, but that's terrible. It's the New York. Venue. Yeah. Those, yeah. When you get in those five boroughs, it gets tough. Oh, man. And, and yeah. they're, they're so, uh, the old school plaintiff's attorneys in New York are so methodical yeah. because yeah. they're so used to winning everything. That, I, that I've had multiple people that don't presumably don't know each other because somewhere on Long Island, somewhere in Brooklyn, somewhere in the Bronx, and they will call me and they say, listen, the lien is this, pan suffering is this reasonably, we're obviously, we obviously multiply that by three, so here's what you should settle for. I mean, I've had multiple people do this stupid three times thing, and I don't yep. know where it comes from. I have no clue. But they say pain and suffering is about 100, lean's 50, that's 150, so 450, so let's, let's go. Let's settle up. This is week one of the claim. I'm like, whoa, I'm not paying. No one's yep. paying 500,000 bucks. I have, I have no clue what's going on here. I have a notice of claim or I have you know, a, a complaint. And it's just, they, but I think they're so used to just winning. Yep. You just <laughs> get a check. I'm yeah. going to win. Yeah, just what am I going to get? And, yeah. Yeah. Um, we had case, I had a case right before I left Selective where we had a video of this man just sitting on the concrete. He just was standing and then sat down and called an ambulance. And I, yes, it was egregious. It maybe looked like maybe he stumbled, but it looked more like he just slowly sat down. But the plaintiff's counsel will not, would not let it go. He would not dismiss the case. He wouldn't, we couldn't even resolve it for a nominal number because it was in the five boroughs. It was just a tough venue. Yeah. And, and, what, and what did you, did you go to trial or did you settle it? Oh, actually I ended up coming over here for it resolved. So. <laughs> That's a no problem. idea. Push you out the door. I had this sitting back claim. I'm out of here. That's it. This one's not for me. I gotta go. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And Matt, that was so easy. Yeah, exactly. Matt, we talked about this. But you said Miami is, is that way, and uh, the, and the yeah, surrounding area is not so bad. My uh, Miami's like that. Broward's like it, it gradually gets better as you go north. Mm -hmm. I actually, I want to tell you, I pulled up the judicial hellhole, and just so, for the record, is clear. Please, I don't. If you screw up, I will. Florida's what? No, no, no. You were you were on the nose. Okay. But to be clear, Florida is a former number one judicial hellhole. Like, oh. Just so the record is. is and what are, what are you now? What have you fallen to? We're on the watch list. We've oh, the, oh, that's listen. That's a great. That's a great decree. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, listen. We've 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 seen an affirmative push towards tort reform. Yeah. Uh, especially in the first party property realm. Uh, it's not perfect, but we're you know we're obviously pushing towards you know uh, fixing that you know it's it's highly litigious mm -hmm. um but uh, we're getting there we're definitely getting there yeah so but what, again can you still have the list up there i want to know can you give the people yeah. the list yeah, let's go all can right you, all right we're gonna, let me go through it oh, philadelphia no, all right number one is philadelphia court of, common, of common pleas number yeah. two is new york city three is california sounds right okay four is south carolina asbestos litigation okay five is louisiana all right Corbin, you're all over this. Oh, yeah. I know these. Six is Georgia, probably after that bad faith case that came out recently. Uh, <laughs> seven is the city of St. Louis, Missouri. Shout out to uh, Mike Young. Uh, number eight is Cook, Madison, and St. Clair Counties, Illinois. And nine Chicago. is Minnesota. Yeah, Minnesota, really. just the whole state. Yeah. <laughs> the entire state. Don't wow. litigate in Minnesota. That's a, no, <laughs> those don't surprise me, except for Minnesota, the state. That's good. Yeah. In South Carolina, asbestos, I don't know what that's. They probably have some bad statute on that. They're saying it's the court's loose application of venue laws and liability expanding decisions by the Minnesota Supreme Court. Hmm. Huh. Well, huh. Would, never, would have never guessed. But yeah, so Corbin, when you receive a, I mean, do you ever talk to a plaintiff's or attorneys and you get a, a settlement value and a jury verdict value and you just say, oh my, I mean, 
I don't, you don't agree with it or you think it's too high, but they're accounting for the nuclear side of things. How does that work? So I don't see as much on this side anymore. Okay. Um, just, we don't, that's more the carrier side to kind of push that envelope. I mean, you know, we may advise that we think it's unreasonable, but right. it's going to be their ultimate decision on settling those cases. So, right. yeah, I just, I don't know. Currently I'm not able to comment on, you know, I hear sure. yeah. Matt, are you, do you ever report to a, a carrier and a broker perhaps and maybe a client and they come back yeah. and you get a call immediately like, Oh my God, what are you serious? It's going to be that high. Yeah. Oh yeah. I've, I've done it. How do you, how do you combat that? If they, if they question you on that. Hold strong. <laughs> no, You're right. You, right. The fear you always have is you, you under report or you, right. yeah. you try to be a people pleaser on that front. You're like, Oh right. yeah, we're going to get out of here. You're right. And then Corbin, right. You hit with a nuclear verdict and they look at the attorney and say, well, you reported pretty low for quite some time. Yeah, you're like that's that uh, that fourth quarter report that changes right. the number of I think really did start with setting that precedent at the beginning. You know, if we do end up at trial, there's a chance that we're going to get hit with this outlandish verdict that yep. would not be expected that I can't account for, especially right. in today's landscape and yep. especially Florida. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and what we've started doing, we we do a, a comprehensive lit plan within 60 days usually, and we, and and it seems early to people when I tell people that like, how do you know everything in 60 days? Well, we don't. But we, we project as much as we can going forward. And some of these lit plans are 40 pages, some are eight pages, but it depends on how, how deep the case is. What we've started to do is we always put a jury verdict, we call it pure exposure, and we put in there a, um, uh, a settlement value. And what we used to do is just, it, we would say, the case is worth this, I think it's settlement, this at trial. Then we started expanding those ranges and they got ridiculous because it's true. It, it, if, if, if the plans is likable and all these things happen and the lien is such and such or whatever, then it's, then it's 5 million and it could be worth 1 million. And that's too broad. So what we started to do is give two ranges for each. If the best case scenario goes our way and we and, and discovery looks yeah. good, the, the plaintiff is not likable, it's this little range. If all this stuff goes bad, it's this bigger range. And we do that for both. And it seems when we revert back a year later or two years later, right on the EVA trial or pretrial motion phase, we're pretty, pretty right. You know, you, you start checking things and you're like, wow, you know what? All these things went bad and it was that higher range. Wow, unbelievable. And so it's cool to see that, to be like a, you know, to have the experience behind you to, to do that. Um, Matt, you're looking at me like you did disbelief. Like you don't, you don't think I'm the prophet. I think I say I am. I, I think you are 100% the prophet Nate. <laughs> <laughs> prophet Nate was in the I, Bible. You know that. There's a prophet named Nate. Was he? Yeah. Nathan, yeah. I'm, I'm a Jewish guy. I don't know. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was named after the prophet Nathan. My mom was really, really, really? prophet Nathan. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. well, listen, you were. Oh, I was named after an airplane. No, you were named after Corbin <laughs> Dallas. Oh yeah, yeah Corbin Dallas in, yeah. in uh, Fifth Element. Yeah, bingo. That's me. <laughs> yeah, great. But well, no, I, mean, look, Nate, I respect it. I respect the way you report. That's how everyone should report, and it it sounds like you get great results. Result. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, we're not always dead on, but I mean, I think it's 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 good to show that and be like, listen, this case you can go one of two ways. We want to we want to basically tell people that are managing risk or looking at claims. There's a million ways this can go. This can spiral out this way, spiral out that way. And we have cases, but you you know this, Matt, and Corbin, you too. Everything goes perfectly. The plaintiff is super yeah. unlikable. Yep. Their story stinks. Damages aren't as bad. And it's great. And you just you just see the value decreasing. And we've had cases go the completely opposite way. And just we lose every hearing. We lose every motion. And it's just like, we're just like, oh my God, I can't. But we don't want to do that if we've, if we've talked about here. We, we don't want to say, hey, it's worth this and end up here. Yeah. Yep. We want to make sure that they know that's a possibility. So that's what we try to do at least. Yeah. But anyway. So I think respect. Maybe yeah, that's what the defense bar would 
defense bar needs to be more affirmative or yeah. more instead of reactionary. We need to be you know, pushing the envelope and being um, you know, in front of these things instead of just reacting to them like tends to happen. Right. And I think, Corbin, you made a good point. You said, you know, if we settle all these little cases that look like they're small, two things. Well, you said one thing happens, which is the aggregation of those is a lot of money. A bunch of 10,000s is a lot. Yeah. But the second thing is these people, I think, speak amongst themselves. And oftentimes when we do our background work on plaintiffs, we'll say, well, their cousin, uncle, and sister all settled cases recently for, for 15,000 bucks. So they just look at that as kind of a, you know, if, my, if those people got it, I can get it. You know, yeah. I have the same kind of injury. I, you know, we're in the same venue. I think if you just keep settling and settling and settling, I think it makes sense financially in the short term, but over the long term, are you welcoming more litigation, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're creating pressure. Yeah. 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 Well, there you go. Perfect. I've solved the world's problem. Boom. Uh, so, easy. So, Done. Profit yeah. need. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Killing it. Hey, you don't even need us. <laughs> exactly. I'll just do the podcast myself. <laughs> no, I, 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 we can wrap up. I know it's been, it's been about an hour, but Corbin and Matt, thank you so much for being here. Um, oh, yeah. you know, we'll let you know when this comes out and, um, and best luck to everyone. And hopefully, like you said, Corbin, the defense bar coalesces a little bit and collaborates a little bit more and we move forward that way. Got to find a way. So, yeah. I appreciate it. Can I make a t-shirt that says profit Nate, the profit of liability? Is that possible? As long, yes. But as long as you do two things, one is the profit Nathan, because my mom would have a connection. All right. And, <laughs> and two, I got, it will do like a Kevin, o, Kevin O'Leary, Kevin Leary, uh, shark tank deal with licensing. We do that. That's uh, like ten percent. Is that what you want? No, no. Just until uh, until your kid's born. When's that? Yeah. <laughs> until your kid's born. When, when is your when is your wife due? She's due in December. Okay, so a couple months. I'll, I'll save up. I'll get some money for Christmas for presents. But thank you. Why are you a defense so, attorney? You're clearly yeah. a shark. Yeah. <laughs> we, we love but, I love, but I love that show. Anyway, guys, right, well, it was thanks, a pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Pleasure. Thanks, guys.